does Judaism believe in democracy? So since the American Revolution in 1776 and the French Revolution in 1789, both countries of which created democratically elected governments, and since then democracy has grown, Britain really had it first, um, and other countries may have had it a little earlier, democracy has grown, and today it is widely seen as the ideal form of government. Together with democracy has also come great freedom and wealth, which has tended to be um, almost exclusive to democratic countries, tend to be freer and wealthier. Um, Over time, over the last 200 plus years, um, with some setbacks, more and more and more people live in democratic societies. Today, a majority of people in the world live in most largely democratic societies, offering most people, uh, offering humanity greater freedom and wealth than we've ever had before in history. And so today, democracy is widely seen throughout the world by most people as the ideal form of government. Um, And almost every country in the world today, with a handful of exceptions, at least claims to be democratic, even if they're not democratic in practice, Almost every country claims to be democratic, and that is because um, democracy is so widely accepted as the ideal form of government. We generally think that democracy began, uh, we think of it as in Greek in origin, the word democracy is a Greek word, um, starting with famously the ancient Athens, which was a democratic society, the ultimate democracy, not a representative democracy, but the ultimate democracy where everybody together was able to sit in public meetings um, where everything was decided in ancient Athens. So what does Judaism say about democracy? Do we as Jews, and does the Torah, which is our guide, believe in democracy as an ideal form of government, or do we prefer other forms of government? So before we attempt to answer this question, let me take a moment just to explain what we mean when we speak of what Judaism says. So we have to be clear that the Torah itself, which Torah means instructions, that's what the word Torah means, um, the Torah itself and its instructions are a covenant between God and our people. So the instructions of the Torah are meant for our people exclusively. We make no attempt to coerce or even encourage others to copy our rules. So the rules of the Torah are exclusively for us. So when we say, does Torah believe in this or does Torah tell us to do that? These are rules for the Jewish people. We are speaking, if we speak about the kind of government that Torah tells us, then we're speaking about the kind of government that Judaism advocates for. We are not advocating for the United States, a majority non-Jewish country, to adopt our Jewish rules. These are rather rules for the ideal Jewish government. That's what we will be focused on, what the Torah says for us Jews. And so this would be for a Jewish country or a Jewish autonomous community. We do, however, believe that there are seven universal laws called the Noahide laws that are for all of humanity. And we Jews are required to advocate for everyone around us to adopt the values of the seven Noahide laws. One of the seven Noahide laws is for every nation to create 
a civilized and fair government that is able to keep the peace with reasonable and fair laws. So in theory, such a government could include any of a number of types of government. We've learned from experience in modern times that modern democracy tends to be the most fair and reasonable type of government. But in theory, the seven Noahide laws would allow for any form of government so long as the rules that they make and the, and the um, enforcement of those rules are civilized and fair and they keep the peace. So in theory, any kind of government would work. So our focus, though, um, today will be on what Judaism instructs us as Jews. Now, as we said, what the Judaism instructs us does not mean that we expect everybody else to do the same. However, it can inform our, since we do have a say here in the government um, as citizens in a democratic country, it can inform our views in general as to how um, the government should run. In other words, we could use the Torah's lessons and the Torah's values as general values as to how things should run. Now, not all the Torah's rules, we could say, are values that the entire world must adopt. Um, but we definitely can find values in the Torah that have universal implication, including in the Torah's form of government. And while we would not say that our, we would not expect our country to adopt such laws, since it is a majority non-Jewish country, we definitely can advocate if we believe such, such an ideal form of government is better or more ideal. So with that intro, let us get to what Judaism's belief is in democracy. So in this week's parsha, as we mentioned before, the Torah tells us to appoint a king from among our brothers. So in this week's parsha, Shoftim, we are supposed to appoint a king. That would imply the ideal form of Jewish government is a monarchy, to have a single king. Indeed, in the days of the prophet Shmuel, the prophet Samuel, the people asked him to appoint, this is about 400 years after Moses, the people asked Samuel to appoint a king, and he responds by appointing Saul, Shaul, as the first king of Israel. Later, Shaul's king, kingdom doesn't last, um, he loses his kingdom, and his son-in-law David becomes king in his place, starting a 400-year dynasty of Davidic monarchs, or monarchs descendants of David. At a certain point, there are two kingdoms in Israel for about 200 years, and both kingdoms are led by a king. And throughout the entire first temple period, um, Jews, Israel is ruled by kings. Later in the second temple, at first, Israel is just a province in the Persian and later Greek empires. But later, after the Hashmonian rebellion that we celebrate with the Hanukkah festival, um, and Israel becomes independent again, Yehuda Maccabee becomes the leader. He is the high priest, he becomes the leader, but he does not take the title king. Later, though, his great-nephew, Yanai, the, le the leadership of Judah Maccabee goes on to his brother, Shimon, and it ends up going to Shimon's son, and it ends up going to his grandson, Yanai. Later, Yehuda Maccabee's great-nephew, Yanai, does in fact take the title, is leader, but actually takes the title king, essentially restoring the Jewish monarchy. And that can, continues for um, a couple decades until the Romans capture Israel. 
So it would appear throughout the time that Jews had independence in the land of Israel, for most of that period we had a monarchy. Later, in Babylon, um, or really at the same time in Babylon, following when Jews were first exiled to Babylon, in our tradition is 421 BCE, um, after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, a couple decades later, the last king of Israel, or one of the last kings of Israel who was still alive at the time, Yehoyachin, becomes the Reish Geluta, or it's called the Exilarch, the king of the exile, the king of Jews in Babylon. Jews eventually create an autonomous state in Babylon that lasts for well over a thousand years. And there is a Jewish prince who is essentially the prince or the leader of Jews in Babylon. Again, a monarchy led by a single individual. So it would then appear that Judaism supports a monarchy (laughs) rather than a democracy. Indeed, there was a fellow, a um, little bit eccentric, called Rabbi Meir Kahana, you may have heard of him, um, who was a, a real American Jew, who was a um, Knesset member in Israel in the 80s, and he advocated, um, based on this history, that Israel abolish its democracy and become a monarchy. He was later banned from the Knesset over his racist views. He, he was racist as well. And later he was assassinated by um, Palestinian terrorists in New York. So, but is he right? Do, does Judaism see a monarchy as the ideal form of rule? Or do we support democracy? Yes. But who's at the top? Moses. That's a leader, right? Moses would have been a single leader. Right, but we also were allowed to have our voices brought to him. Yes, yeah, oh, the people could speak to the leader. We're not talking now about how the leaders actually lead. We're just talking about the form of government. Should it be one person at the top? um, Or should there be everybody have a say? Yes, I have a question. That is... Later on, when democracy was forming in monarchies, there would be a king, like in England, and a queen now, and then there would be a parliament, etc. So the idea of the two... You could have two, okay. You could have a king and a democracy as Britain today. Very good point. So that was not in existence back then, so we don't... So I'm not so sure whether Judaism is yay or nay, whether that could have been an acceptable model. Yes. Sorry? In many of these earlier situations, the king was also considered a godlike. Not in Judaism, I think. Not in Judaism, and that's what makes the difference. Okay, Carol, very good point. Very good point, very good point. We're going to talk about that in a moment. They were one of the first assassins? They claimed to be the first. But did they go back as far as... They go back about 3,000 years. So did democracy start about 3,000 years? In Athens. Oh, okay. Yes. Was it a 
It was a pure democracy. And then these cultures have very restricted social levels. Slaves, all the way up to patricians, all the way up to landlords, all the way up to appointed Yes, there wasn't... Yes, no, democracy did not include everyone. Not everyone had citizenship or voting rights. Very good point. Women and slaves could not vote, and non, non-landowners could not vote. Very good point. So the truth is that ideal democracy, where everybody has a say, is also in, imperfect. And the original Greek democratic cities, like Athens, had problems themselves, and their democracies didn't last either. Um, Plato, in his famous work, um, Republic, refer, speaks of the different options of government, and he does not support democracy because of its downsides. His ideal form of government is a philosopher king, which is a king who is ultimately good and makes the right decisions and sees good in everything. Um, it may be too idealistic and impractical, but that is his ideal for government. Um, and indeed, a pure rule of the majority has a lot of problems with it. The first problem is tyranny of the majority. If something is in the interest of the majority, they will vote for it even though it unfairly harms a minority. So if 51% or 50% plus one have a certain interest that is harmful to the other 50% minus one, then the 50% plus one will force their will and harm the minority. A further problem that democracy has, a further problem that democracy has is a lack of good judgment among the majority. Sometimes the majority make bad decisions. Um, Sometimes they make horrible decisions. A majority can vote for foolish or even terrible things. Um, such in our country, which has always been a democracy, in our history, allowed for witch trials, allowed for slavery, many other democracies had all sorts of things that today we would be considered consider horrible. And in fact, the Nazi party came to power in Germany in 1933. They didn't receive a majority of the vote, but they received an parliamentary system that they had in the Weimar Republic, they received the plurality of the vote. They were the largest party. um, And they were voted in. So a lot of people can vote in bad things. So pure democracy is not a great idea. It doesn't work very well. You're not saying that the United States has a pure democracy. We have a representative democracy. So pure democracy doesn't work very well. And in this country, generally pure democracy needs to be tempered with something in order to counter all of these negative parts of democracy. So in this country, we created a very difficult to change constitution that includes basic rights with limiting the power of the majority. And there are many basic rights in our Constitution, state rights, individual rights, that greatly limit the power of the majority, and our Constitution is extremely difficult to change. It requires requires three-quarters of the states to vote for it, 
um, and um, Congress, and it's, it's very hard to, um, to, to change. And this has ha- kept our country successful and democratic for well over 200 years, and we are now considered by many, depending on how you categorize it, the longest standing democracy. So while constitutional uh, democracy, as we call it, and other countries have similar things, Britain has its own constitutional democracy. Its constitution is a lot easier to change and has some um, problems with it, as they're discovering now. Um, Constitutional democracy... um, has become the democratic and workable ideal in modern times. Most countries today, um, or most of what we call democratic and free countries, are constitutional democracies. Um, They are still sometimes imperfect. Sometimes the constitution itself needs to be changed. Sometimes a supermajority can be found to change the constitution, invoking tyranny of the majority, as happened in certain countries like Turkey or Venezuela that were democratic, constitutional democracies, and they managed to get supermajorities to change the constitution to create tyranny. Um, Or sometimes you have a problem that in theory could happen in this country as well. Or sometimes you could have a problem of a constitution that can be interpreted in ways that are harmful, and I think that would depend on Um, whom you ask. Some people would think that Supreme Court interpretations like Citizens United um, is harmful and wrong. Others would think that Roe v. Wade is harmful and wrong. And there are many other different situations, uh, decisions and ways we interpret our Constitution today that people on both sides or on all sides of the political spectrum may think are wrong. So It's the best system we got, constitutional democracy. It is not perfect, though. What, then, is the Torah's system of government? So Josephus was a Jewish Hellenist historian. Jewish Hellenist was a Jew um, of Greek culture, um, not a traditional Jew, but he was a Jew of Greek culture. And he wrote wrote a number of Books, in one of his books, Against Apion, um, which is essentially a defense of Judaism. From his perspective, as a Jewish Hellenist, he writes a defense of Judaism. Um, it's not entirely accurate because he wasn't, wasn't a traditional Jew, but he still writes a lot of great things over there. And over there, he comes up with a new term for government, theocracy. Now, he explains over there in Against Apion that there are three types of government common in the world in his days. Monarchy, ruled by a mono, a single person. Oligarchy, um, sorry, aristocracy, uh, aristocracy, which is led by the aristocrats or, uh, or the oligarchy, led by the leaders of the group. And a democracy, which is led by universal suffrage or close to it, by the regular, the commoners, the regular people. He says Judaism has a totally fourth, has a fourth type of government, different. Judaism, he says, is a theocracy. That's the Greek term he wrote, he wrote in Greek. That's the Greek term he uses. Now, in modern times, the word theocracy has taken on a new and negative meaning, and it usually means a government controlled by religious fanatics. And it was a term that was used in England and in this country, um, in 
political campaigns against religious people um, whom they said would create a theocracy, a fanatical religious country. Um, it's often a term used today to describe the Iranian regime, which is read by, led by its mullahs or ayatollahs, religious leaders, um, and it's a totalitarian regime. And so they often, it's often described as a theocracy. However, in its original term, the original individual who made that term, who coined that term, Josephus, um, meant theocracy a little bit different. And when he says Judaism is a theocracy, what he means is something else. Judaism is a theocracy, meaning a government where people do not have the ultimate say. Not one person, not the um, aristocracy, and not the... um, not one person, not the, not the elite, and not the um, commoners. There are no people who have the ultimate say. Rather, he says, there is a higher law given by God. And everyone, leader, common people, um, nobles, everybody is answerable to the same God-given laws. Leaders cannot make their own laws as they go along. They must live within God-given laws. In Jewish governments, everyone, even the king, is answerable to God, and everyone must live within God's laws. And this is perhaps best demonstrated in a fascinating story in our scripture in the book of Kings. The most wicked king of all the kings that we had during First Temple period is generally, there's a couple wicked kings, but one of the most wicked was Ahav. Ahav was an idolater, personally an idolater, with his wife Izebel, Jezebel. And he was also a tyrant. He was a horrible king. And in the book of Malachim, in the book of Kings, it tells us that Ahav had a field, in a vineyard in the Yisrael Valley, Emek Yisrael. And next to his vineyard was another vineyard owned by a relative of him called of his called Navot. And when Achav asked Navot to sell him the field, Navot refused to sell him. He asked him, sorry, to sell him his vineyard. The king asks Navot to sell him the vineyard. Navot refused to sell him the vineyard. So Achav is very upset. He comes home. And he lays on his bed dejected and depressed that he cannot get the field he wanted. His wife, the queen, Izebel, Jezebel, um, seeing how upset he was, says, I am going to take care of this for you. She was not of Jewish stock. She was um, the daughter of the king of Tyre. And so um, she says, I will take care of it for you. Um, she hires false witnesses to testify about Navos that he committed a crime that for which there was capital punishment and has him put to death for his capital crime that he was falsely accused of by the Jewish courts. And then after he dies, Achav is then able to get his field it's unclear from the book of Kings how Ahab had rights to the field. Either 
Achav, Navot, was a relative of Achav, and Achav was simply his next of kin. In other words, he would have gotten it anyway when he died, but he couldn't wait. Um, or another, another explanation given is that, that she accused Navot of... Um, she accused Navot of treason. And treason, um, the rule was that the king gets their property when someone is convicted of treason. So whichever way it was, Achav gets the property. Now the story is a very strange one. Achav is the most wicked tyrant. He's a horrible king. He wants a field. Why can't he just take it? Not democracy. The answer is theocracy. In Israel, a king, as bad as he may have been personally, and as many rules, Jewish rules that he may have personally broken, and as bad as he may have treated his own people and his own subjects, um, he's still bound by laws, and he cannot break the Jewish laws, including property laws, which is central to Judaism. He cannot take someone's property without permission. Unless he has, unless it's within the rules. And so we see from here a very powerful thing. Any king, no matter how bad they were, they were still bound by Jewish laws by the, and by the Jewish legal system. They were never above the law. And that is why the Torah says that the king must come from Mikera from the midst of your brothers. He is always one of you and must always live by the same rules. And this has been true for all Jewish governments in, throughout history. Um, while governments can make laws um, and change laws sometimes, they're all within the framework of Jewish law, of Torah laws. And the ultimate law is the Torah law, and they must always work within the laws of the Torah. Who is it that actually leads this theocracy? In other words, who is the one that actually decides the religious rules? So here Josephus makes a little error. Um, he says that it is the Kohanim, the priests. We know that in Jewish history, the priests never had only controlled the worship in the temple, but never actually had a say in Jewish law. Rather, as the Torah tells us in this week's parsha, and as has been throughout history, um, the rules were made by, or were made, come from the Torah itself, from Moses, who decided how to apply the rules. We had a judicial system decided by Jewish courts, um, a system called the Sanhedrin, uh, Jewish councils. Um, there were multiple level councils that went all the way back to the Supreme Council or the Sanhedrin Hagadol that had 71 members. Um, there and the members of the the members of these this council was selected by um, was selected by the Jewish by the sages by the scholars and. Um, and they, they themselves always followed majority rules as well. With 71 members, they always took a vote and followed the majority. So the Sanhedrin always had a <coughs> final say. Um, once the Sanhedrin was abolished, um, about 2,000 years ago or 1,700 years ago, once the Sanhedrin was abolished, <coughs> we followed the local rabbinic leaders in each community who were generally appointed by the community itself. 
However, religious leadership in Judaism did not follow some sort of religious um, group, such as priesthood, did not follow some sort of religious power structure. It simply followed scholarship. A rabbi was a scholar. And is today. A rabbi is a scholar, and the Hebrew term rav means a teacher. And so rabbis are simply scholars, and it is laws, and you simply need scholars that understand the laws to make the decisions as to what the laws are. But it is scholars, no one who has some religious, um, who is um, super powerful religiously, or some sort of religious, we never had a religious power structure outside of the actual temple itself, but rather it was always scholars that decided what Torah law said. They could only decide what Torah law said. They don't decide what the government should do, um, but they must approve whatever the government does must be within Torah, within the Torah's rules, and that was Josephus's theocracy. So the Torah, so the rules are ultimately made, uh, must be within, uh, made by God within Torah rules as decided by the, our, our scholarship, Torah scholars. Um, but the Torah and the actual leaders, the actual civil leaders, the people who actually rule, who actually run the government, um, the Torah does allow for a king, but the Torah does not require a king. The Torah says when the people ask for a king, you shall give them a king. But it doesn't require us to have a king. Indeed, for 400 years we did not have a king. We had rather um, elected leaders that were elected by the 12 tribes would elect leaders called Shoftim judges. Um, Only when the people asked for a king in the days of Samuel did Samuel appoint a king for them. Even then, the king, Samuel firstly was upset at them that they asked for a king. Um, And the king was always appointed by the people and served at the people's pleasure. Although they never went up for re-election, the kings, they were generally kings for life. Um, There was the option of the leadership recalling the king if the people did not want. And at certain times, they did not accept the king after the death of King Solomon. Ten tribes refused to accept his son as king and rather chose a different king that led to a split in the kingdom. So the the Torah does allow for monarchy if we want. Um, And we did have, in much of our early history, we did have a monarchy, both in the land of Israel, as we mentioned, throughout the first temple period, um, for a short time during the second temple period, which were not elected, but they forced themselves upon Israel um, without the people's agreement. Um, It was done uh, by force. Um, We had also in Babylon, we had the Reish Gilotah, we had monarchs. Um, However, for much of the last 2,000 years, we Jews did not have our own countries. We did, though, have our own autonomous communities, or what was often called the Kehillah. And our autonomous communities, generally, the leadership of our communities were elected. And they were generally democratically elected. And this already went back to Second Temple period, going back 2,000 years, where local governments were elected by the people. They were generally called Shiva Tuvei Ha'ir, the seven elders of the city. 
Um, and every town had Shiva Tuvei Ha'ir, seven elders. Doesn't appear they were always seven. And they were the Kehila, they were the leaders of the community. And this system continued throughout our exile, where elected officials ruled every Jewish community throughout um, our last 2,000 years. Um, there were times when Jewish communities actually joined together to form federations. Uh, we had a feder- Jewish federation um, in Germany. Um, called, we had a Jewish federation in Germany. Um, in, um, that was the beginning of Ashkenazic Jewry um, in the 1000s, 1100s. We had a Jewish federation in Poland that lasted for about four or 500 years called the Vad Arba Artsos. Um, that essentially was a government for autonomous government for all of Polish Jewry. Um, so we did have federations, but they were generally federations of elected community leaders. So elected community leaders would then, in, in turn, elect national leaders or leaders of their federal communities. Yes. They usually had total autonomy. It varies from place to place. They usually had autonomy within the, their own Jewish community. Um, they often also had their own geographical area because Jews lived in their own area, not always. Um, and uh, they had generally with crime, they had autonomy, not always. Um, but they had always some degree of autonomy. They were generally recognized by the larger community, by the government as representatives of the Jews. They're responsible for collecting Jewish taxes and all other Jewish issues. Uh, but let's talk of... Yes? When you refer to the leaders, you're always talking about the rabbis? The leaders of the community. I'll get to rabbis in a moment. So organized, these organized Jewish communities were generally called kehilas. Um, they still have them in some parts of the world. We don't have them in the United States um, for whatever reason. There was an attempt in the late 19th century to create one in New York um, that failed. Uh, we have never successfully created a kahila or a centralized, centrally organized community um, in any city in the United States. But we did have them in Europe and in the Middle East in most communities. Um, so... Generally, um, the Kahila we saw as a community partnership. So in other words, a community is a partnership of its members. Now, a community is not quite a partnership because unlike a partnership where any partner has the option to voluntarily leave if they wish, in a community, once a community is formed, everyone residing in that, demog- in that geographic location must be part of the community and doesn't have the option of leaving unless they leave the area. If they want to stay in that demographic, in that ge- geographic area, they must be part of the community. So it's a forced partnership, yet still a partnership where everybody has a say. So elected officials then are seen in Jewish law as simply agents appointed by partners to manage their interests. And for that matter, when we had a monarchy, the king would be seen the same way as an agent on behalf of the people leading a partnership to manage their interests. And so therefore, they only have the right to work in the interest of their constituents. 
any action that an elected leader, Jewish leader takes that is shown can be proven to be of self-interest only and not an interest of their constituents is invalid. How were these leaders appointed? So it varied from community to community and it depended a lot on what the power of those leaders were, which also varied depending on the power that the um, place they were in, the non-Jewish majority, gave them or allowed them to have. Um, Sometimes they were appointed by taxpayers only. Sometimes they were appointed by every head of household. In other words, every household got a, got a seat, got a vote. Um, sometimes it was both. Generally, for financial issues, it was taxpayers. For non-financial issues, it was every head of household. Um, and often there'd be two councils for that reason. Um, generally, Jewish elected officials um, in Kehillahs had term limits and had to run for re-election every couple of years. And most communities had direct elections for their leadership. Some of the larger communities, big cities that had many, many, many synagogues and thousands or tens of thousands of Jews or even hundreds of thousands of Jews living in them, um, what they would do is they would have every synagogue would have its own elected board and then each synagogue would send a representative to a council, to a city-wide council. So essentially that way you chose which synagogue you want to be a member of and then you would elect your local official and then that would be your representative in the city. How did that approach get started and spread? It started in the days of the Second Temple. Um, It started in the land of Israel. Um, It started with the understanding in Jewish law that um, it may have been even before that. We We just don't have records. It started with the understanding that in Jewish law um, a government is simply a represent a agents of a partnership, and so um, they can only be your agents if you allow them to be so, or if most people, most partners want them to be so, and they can only work on behalf of their partners. So that's where it started, but it proliferated. I mean, it spread. It existed throughout the Jewish communities. To a wide geography. As we moved, it moved with us. Just like all of Jewish laws, values, customs, and traditions, democratically elected officials was also part of something that we've done for a very, very long time. Um, whether we did it in the First Temple period, we don't know. We definitely had monarchy then nationally. Um, whether What we did locally, we don't know. Um, it doesn't appear that in tribal times, meaning First Temple period, or oh, before the First Temple, uh, when we were really split by tribes, we had democracy within the tribe. Um, it was probably more tribal elders that chose their tribal leader. Um, but even then, there was some form of election, but it would have only been probably leaders. But we don't know for certain. And there were times that um, both the uh, leaders of the civil law predominated over what might have been Jewish tradition. And one example would have been I think I remember in some, some classes. That's a subject of its own. Let's, yeah, let's talk subject. about that another thing. So, so the upshot of what you're saying is that Israel, if they were keeping Torah law, could keep their present government structured like it is. The, sort of. The Kehila leadership, though, in Judaism, was always answerable to spiritual leadership or to religious leadership, to scholars. 
Um, every kahila had a rabbi, or in larger kahilas, a group of rabbi, usually called a beth din, a court. Um, sometimes it had both a rabbi and a beth din that had veto power on any law or action that they deemed was against halacha. They couldn't dislike a law because they just didn't like it or thought it was wrong. They could only strike down a law or an action taken by the organized community if they deemed it against halacha, against Jewish law. And this held every kahila accountable to Torah law. So while the kahila could make its own rules within the framework of Torah, while the kahila leadership generally had a president and officers that were actually... Um, do, leading the community, um, enforcing different things. Um, they all had to work within Jewish law. Ultimately, um, the kahila was accountable to Jewish law, and ultimately everything, the, um, the scholarship, the Torah scholars, had ultimately a veto power. The Beddin and the rabbis themselves were generally appointed by the kahila, were appointed by the community, um, and if a community, for whatever reason, was unhappy with the rabbi, they generally did not have the option of just dismissing them. Um, to dismiss a rabbi was something that was extremely difficult to do. Um, what, they, what it usually required to dismiss a rabbi was a, um, they would usually get together a beth din of rabbis from re the region, from other areas, to come together to all agree to dismiss a rabbi when it was necessary. So it wasn't easy for the kahila if the rabbi decided something that the kahila didn't like, for the kahila to just dismiss that rabbi. They couldn't just get rid of him and fire him. It wasn't all that easy. Sometimes, and many times we have in history, there was friction between the kahila and the rabbi, where the rabbi perhaps vetoed rules that felt was not within Jewish law, the Bethdin did, and the Kahila said, um, thought that the rabbi was just acting within their own political interests and not within the real needs of Jewish law. Um, that did happen within the Jewish community. There was a big fight, huge fight in the um, 18th century in Vilna, one of the largest Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, that destroyed the community. Um, and that, that definitely did happen, but we had these kind of two centers of power where the Kahila which was elected, had to work within Torah law. And that really limited its power and limited its ability because you could not do anything that was harmful to the minority or went against Jewish rules um, and Jewish values. We haven't had any organized kahila in the United States. There are still organized kahilas in Europe that work somewhat in a similar way. They may be. Um, synagogues might work in similar ways with boards and rabbis, um, but they definitely don't have the same autonomous and the same the same autonomy and the same power that the communities in Europe had or in the Middle East had. At least two thousand years ago. So today we Jews live in a non-Jewish country. And we don't advocate. So an ideal Jewish community then um, is elected officials, and that's the way we've had it for 2,000 years, elected officials that are elected by the community. Um, the exact form of election would vary on what the role of those officials are. 
and um, they, and, but the, but those elected officials and the community in general must still all work within the framework of the Torah. We are ultimately Josephus's theocracy, where everything must work within the framework of the Torah. Nobody has the right to do anything without Torah, outside of Torah law. Ultimately, the the rabbi or the Beth Din are the have are the judges to call what's within Torah law and what is not. If we the Kehillah believes that the, Bet, that the rabbi or the Beth Din is not acting within Torah interests, then they would have to move to, since we didn't have a supreme government, they would have to move to outside communities or outside rabbis to aid them in removing their rabbi if they felt necessary. Now today we live in a non-Jewish country, so we do not advocate that this country follow Torah law, as we mentioned earlier, um, because it's a non-Jewish country. Yet we Jews should look for to-, to Torah for guidance um, for our values. Um, we should see if Torah says that there are certain values, we should adopt them as our values. We are lucky today to live in one of the freest democracies ever in history. Uh, but we also, as a result, have the opportunity to influence our government with our vote and to publicly advocate for our values and beliefs. And we should attempt to influence our government. While we don't expect our government to follow Torah, we should, as Jews, attempt to influence our government um, to follow the moral, morals and values that we believe to be true according to Torah because we believe them to be divine values and the best way for a society to live. And so by our country adopting our Jewish values, we'll be able to make our country even better than it already is. So let me conclude. I'm going to... We've got a country we don't make-